Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. As you can see by all of the uh, light blue shirts, this is our Get Connected weekend after the service. Uh, all of the leaders of all of our small groups and Bible studies will be out in the, live, uh, the lobby to uh, help you to connect uh, with our small groups. So that's what's going on with all of the uh, blue shirts. I uh, told the worship team this morning, uh, you know, we had all these ladies up here, Malachi playing the drums, and you know, I'm a, a product of uh, 1970s cartoons, and I said, you know, it was uh, Malachi and the Pussycats were up here, basically. So, uh, but I super appreciate Rasha and uh, Malachi and the rest of the ladies and, and Diane for uh, all the great work that she has been doing uh, leading our worship uh, team and uh, ministry over the last uh, 18 months or so. I wanted to uh, let you know that uh, we had, uh, last weekend, we had a, a potential worship pastor candidate came in, met with us, some members of our worship team on Saturday night, uh, worshiped with them, uh, played music. Uh, actually, we snuck them into a worship service last week, and uh, he also uh, attended uh, our picnic last week. And uh, after uh, meeting with our, our elders, we've decided that we're going to candidate him. His name is uh, Mark Smith. He's from uh, Albuquerque. Well, he's actually from Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, but he lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico right now. And so uh, Mark and his uh, wife, Viandria, are going to be here again on the weekend of September 10th uh, for him to actually uh, candidate. So there'll be some opportunities for you to uh, meet with him. So uh, God is faithful. He uh, always works in his time and not necessarily our time. Uh, but we're excited uh, with what he is up to, and we're excited to uh, be able to have uh, Mark come and lead us in worship in a few weeks. So uh, with that said, let's uh, dive into God's Word uh, today. Uh, I was uh, doing a little uh, research uh, this week. I came across this uh, very interesting uh, story that kind of ties in with what we're going to talk about today. For decades, a, a wool blanket sat folded over the back of a chair, uh, collecting dust in the working class uh, retiree Ted Kutz's modest home. Now, this blanket, uh, this wool blanket that was just kind of hanging over a chair, uh, for as far as uh, Ted can remember, was first given to uh, his grandparents as a gift. Uh, they were poor farmers uh, sometime in the late 1800s. And then, uh, over time, as his grandparents passed on, it was casually given to his parents. No big deal, just kind of something that gets handed down through the family. And then, ultimately, uh, his parents, uh, Ted's parents, gave them to him, and it just kind of hung out on this chair. Now, on a whim, in 2001, uh, Ted took the blanket to PPS's Antique Roadshow. It had, had come to his hometown. He said, this thing is kind of old. I, I wonder if it's actually worth anything. And uh, he shows the blanket to this textile appraiser who happens to be there. And the appraiser is astonished by what is hanging in front of him. It is a, a Navajo Ute first phase cheese blanket dating back to the mid-1800s, and it was valued between $350,000 and a half a million bucks. Now, Ted is so blown away when he hears this, he begins to weep. This is like a 70-year-old man. He is weeping, and the guy asked, Ted, why are you weeping? And he said, my grandparents were poor, my parents were poor, I'm poor, and we had three hundred fifty dollars to $500,000 hanging over a chair in our house for the last hundred years. But Ted and his family are not alone in failing to realize that they possess something of great value something that needs to be nurtured in the present and then ultimately carefully passed down to the next generation. And many followers of Jesus find themselves in the same situation when they fail to realize the great blessing that comes with being a member of God's family and the incredible responsibility that comes with that in order to pass that blessing down to the next generation. And, and this is not just a problem in, in our culture. Uh, the, the problem of passing down God's faithfulness, communicating it to the next generation, has been a, a struggle throughout recorded history. 
Uh, and this is especially true in the Old Testament book of Judges. The, the great Old Testament leader Joshua, who had served under Moses, had uh, courageously led the Israelites into the promised land. And, and he very faithfully had uh, divided the land between the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and then at age 110, after a life of faithfulness, he draws his last breath. And this is what happens next. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Eris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. In other words, all of Joshua's generation died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. You see, all it took for the wheels to come off was, was one generation of Israelites, the generation following Joshua, to fail to pass on the faith to the next generation. All, all it took for sin and the inevitable suffering that always comes from sin to spread throughout the next generation was for the preceding generation to be apathetic, lazy, or distracted and passing on their faith. All it took for their children and their grandchildren to, 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 to be destroyed was for moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles to fail to intentionally pass down their faith to the next generation. May that not be said of us. May you and I pass our faith to the next generation so that they can do the same for the generation after them and the generation after them and so on. But how do you do that? What does that look like? That's what we're going to discover uh, this morning as we continue to, to work through our, our study of 2 Timothy. We're going to see that uh, as Paul is coming into the final stretch of his life, what this looks like. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app on your phone, we're going to make our way to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, we're going to work on verses uh, 1 through 8 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, please feel free to get up and get one or ask your neighbor to pass one down to you. I think they're on page 996 in the Bibles that we provided. You'll be at least close. I didn't double check that, but I think that's where we're at. And uh, if you were able to stand in honor of God's word, would you please do that? Second Timothy, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away 
from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The words that we just read there, these are some of the very last recorded words of the Apostle Paul. And from what we can gather that within a year of him writing 2 Timothy, Paul is executed for his faith by Nero's Roman government. And and knowing that that his death is is imminent, is impending, and and knowing that that this time he's not going to get to, to leave prison alive, Paul transfers the baton of ministry to his young apprentice. And in doing so, Paul says to Timothy, and I believe he says to us, it's your turn. I have done what I have been called to do. I've been faithful in communicating the gospel to my generation and to the next And in doing so, it has come at a great personal cost to me. But it's been worth it. And now, it's your turn. It's your turn to to communicate the gospel to your generation and to the next. And, And that's the big idea for this morning. It's a very simple one. I put it on the screen here, and this is what it says. It says, God calls each generation of Christians to reach their generation and the next with a gospel. That's the the, the message that that we're going to glean here this morning. You and I are not to behave like the ancient Israelites after the death of Joshua, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Instead, we are to faithfully communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been faithfully communicated to us, to other people of our generation, and ultimately of the next. And Paul shares with us and Timothy in the first eight verses of chapter four what what that is ultimately going to look like. And these are the things that we need to glean from this morning. The first is this, that God is watching. He's not some faraway God. He's watching everything that we do and everything we don't do. The second thing is this. We're responsible as followers of Jesus Christ. It's our job. It's nobody else's job. And and individually, each of us are responsible. I have, have my responsibility in communicating the gospel to those in my area of influence. You have your responsibility of communicating the gospel to those who are in your area of interest or, or area of influence. Number three. This is the hard one. Others are resistant. There are people in our world that are happy to be running off the cliff of sin. Others are resistant. Why? Because there is an enemy out there who who doesn't want them to, to have the freedom that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, as a result, they're resistant. They're not horrible people. They're not nasty people. They're lost people. Many of them are what you would call good people. They do good things. But they're resistant because their eyes have been blinded by the evil one. Number four, the work is hard. If it was easy to share the gospel, everyone would do it all the time. 
It's, it's a very simple message. But declaring that message to other people, it comes with, with all kinds of fears and concerns. You're not sure how people are going to re- respond to you. But the fact is, the, the, the work is hard. And at the end, what we will see is the reward is worth it. Not only for you, but for the ones who God will draw to himself through your testimony. So let's break these down. The first one, God is watching. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Timothy, or look at verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and, the, and of Christ Jesus, who is, judge, or who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. You see, there's no doubt in Paul's mind that, 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 that Jesus is alive and active in the world. Paul has had a, a life-changing encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. It's an encounter which changes the Apostle Paul from a hater of Jesus and a persecutor of Christians, and it changes him not only to being a follower of Jesus, but a planter of Christian churches and the unashamed proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that Jesus is alive because Paul has encountered Jesus, and it didn't just happen on the road to Damascus. God continues to to work throughout Paul's life. He saves Paul from from being horrifically stoned by a bunch of angry Jews in Lystra. He frees Paul by opening prison doors. He rescues him from a shipwreck. He saves him from being bitten by a poisonous snake. And who knows how many other amazing ways that God worked in Paul's life that are not recorded in Scripture. Now, none of this should have come as a surprise to Paul. Because Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always. Not sometimes. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive in the lives of his children. He, he creates countless opportunities for you and I to be able to share this hope that we have with other people around us. All we have to do is actually open our eyes to the opportunities that he is presenting and then faithfully take the step to engage with people. But Paul understands this. He understands more than than the fact that Jesus is just alive. He also understood that Jesus is ultimately going to judge both the living and the dead. There is going to come a day when every one of us is going to be judged by Jesus. He is going to hold us accountable for how we have lived for the things that we have done and the things that we haven't done. He's going to hold us accountable for how we treat other people, for what we post in social media. He's going to hold us accountable for how we stewarded the gifts and blessings that he has graciously given us. And more than anything else, he is going to hold us accountable for what we have done with him through the repentance of our sin and through receiving him as Lord and Savior. And those two truths, that that Jesus is ever-present, and that Jesus is going to ultimately judge, they're what motivated Paul to obediently follow Jesus' commands with courage, and to relentlessly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wanted Timothy to understand that. That Jesus is here, and he will ultimately judge. And as much as it motivated Paul, it should motivate you and I. And as I I wrote these words and I put them uh, on on the computer screen and I'm typing them up, I'm thinking to myself, so many times do I struggle in my faith and in my obedience. So many times I, I live my life like Jesus isn't right there. So many times I live my life Like, like I'm not going to be held accountable for the things that I am doing. 
And God sees it when I willfully choose to obey. God sees that. He sees it when I'm thinking, I'm going to go do this thing. And and God's word comes into my mind and says, no, you shouldn't do that thing. And I kick God's word aside. He sees that. He sees it when I fail to, to demonstrate his love to my family or my neighbors or to all of you or to the stranger in the street. He sees it when I consider myself better than others. He, he sees all of that. He sees that when I look down at my nose at, at other people thinking I've got all my crap together. And they're so incredibly messed up. And he sees it when I feed my flesh rather than deny it. And so many times I struggle in my faith and my obedience because I fail to remember that Jesus will one day judge me in a way that is so clearly affirmed in Hebrews when he says, for the word of God, that's Jesus, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature, that would be you and me, is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. And if you and I are to be effective in reaching our generation and the next generation for the cause of Christ, if we're going to be effective to reaching a a generation who are losing their minds and speeding off a cliff to destruction, we've got to keep those two truths before us. Jesus is always with us. And because of that, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. And there will come a day when Jesus will hold us accountable for what we have and haven't done. And it is those truths that serve to motivate us to humbly yet boldly share the good news of Jesus Christ with a world that so desperately needs it. Now, with that in mind, we're ready to look at the second uh, truth that we learn from these, or the second principle that Paul shares, and it says that, that, that we're responsible. Look at verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, on the surface, that looks like it's a command that's set aside for people who are in vocational ministry. You know, that, that's something that, that Bongo and Pastor Ben and Miss Victoria, Pastor James, uh, myself, those are things that, that we need to worry about. But all you, all, all you common people out there, all right, you don't have to worry about this. But it's more than just that. It is a call for every man and woman, child, who claims the name of Jesus to engage other people with the gospel. And the first thing that we're told is is to preach the word. The the, the word preach there, it's in the imperative mood. It it means that it's a command. And to preach means to, to proclaim publicly. And what are we to proclaim publicly? We are to proclaim the word, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. You see, this book that I hold in my hand and that book that you have on your laps or that's on your phone right now, this book, like none other, explains the world that we live in. There is no other book that has ever been written, that is currently in print, or will ever be written in the future that explains the world any better than this book. This book explains everything. It explains the the origins of the universe, that, that all things were created in God and through God, including you and me. It explains how incredibly valuable each one of us are, regardless of what the world says to us. 
God says that we are incredibly valuable. Why? Because he has created us in his image, male and female, he has created us. Our lives are so incredibly valuable from the moment of our conception in our mother's womb to the the moment that we take our, our, our last breath. This book explains the, the beautiful and complementary differences between men and women. In a world that says there are no differences, this book explains the differences and how we complement one another and how we need one another. This book explains what? It explains the, the, the source of the brokenness of our world, the source of our sufferings. It explains why in the world we feel lost and alone. No other book explains that. It it helps us to understand the reason why we hurt other people and the power of forgiveness and the beauty of grace and the joy of reconciliation and the hope of restoration. This book, it took 1,500 years to write. 66 books written on three continents, continents by scores of authors with a common theme in it all of of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And as Pastor Ben taught us last week, it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. This book gives life like none other can. And in order for us to proclaim it, we got to know it, we need to read it, we need to meditate it, we need to study it, and more than anything else, you guys, and I'm preaching to myself right now, we got to obey it. Even when we don't like what it says, it's there for our good. It's just like a mom or dad who tells us stuff we don't want to hear, And the reality is we need to hear it. Why? Because it's for our good. And when we see the difference that it makes in our lives and in the lives of those who we love, how in the world could we possibly not want to share that with other people? But we're responsible for not only proclaiming the word, we're also called to do it in and out of season. In other words, We need to be ready to to share the good news with others, whether whether we want to do it or not. We need to be willing to do it whether it's going to be well-received or whether we know it's not going to be well-received, whether it's popular or not. We need to share it whether it puts us in danger or not. And we never know when God's going to give us the opportunity to share this word with someone. And, And when he does, we need to take the opportunity to do it. Now, These opportunities of sharing, he he says it comes in in three different ways, probably more than that, but the three ways are summarized up here. The first one he says is this. Sometimes we share God's word for the purpose of reproving. Now, that's not a word that we use very often. Uh, I've come here to reprove you today. (laughs) But what reproving means is this. To correct gently with kind intent. We're to use God's word to gently redirect people's misunderstanding of the world around them or gently correct behaviors that they are doing that is hurtful to them or to our society. Now, sometimes things have to get ratcheted up a little bit and you move from reproving to rebuking. Rebuking is much stronger than reproving. When we rebuke someone, we seek to correct uh, wrong beliefs or or moral behavior. And we do it not with our opinion, but we do it with God's word. Because God's word gives us a standard in which we can distinguish between what is right and wrong, helpful and hurtful, or godly from godless. This is a standard. In a world that believes in relative truth, this comes along and says, no, 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 no. This is absolute truth. This is, 
it says there's no misunderstanding here. What I, you know, thou shall not kill actually means thou shall not kill. I mean, if we live in a society that, that is, has evolved its uh, survival of the fittest, why would you say thou shall not kill? I mean, if I'm stronger than you and I want your stuff, why can't I rub you out, take your stuff? I mean, that would be, that would be, it, that falls into a natural worldview. But the Bible comes along and says, it's not your stuff. You can't take their life. And so it provides us this standard. And sometimes we share God's word for the purpose of exhorting or encouraging to help people know how to deal with the challenges of living in our broken and hurting world. Has something happened to you and you want to respond in anger? You've been hurt. And your natural tendency is to respond in anger. God's word speaks to that. In Proverbs 15, it says this. A soft word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You want to make things worse, respond in wrath. You want to fix things, respond in kindness. Are you frustrated in, in a world where, where justice is perverted regardless of, the, of the, the R, the D, or the I that's on the end of your voter registration? God's word speaks to that. And, and, and those who, who serve in, in elected office would do well to remember this. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike. They're an abomination to the Lord. It doesn't get stronger than that. When we pass a a, a blind eye at the sin of someone else because uh, they're they're a member of, of our clique or our party or whatever, we're just as wrong as, as someone who condemns a righteous person. Are you afraid? Do you live fearfully in this world? God's word speaks to that. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, doing all of this, it will be challenging. And that's why we're told at the end of verse 2 to do it with complete patience and teaching. It's not our job to beat people over the head with this. We're, we're to use it to help, but not to crush. We aren't to get frustrated when people don't get it or when they push back. Our job is to simply obey, kindly instruct, and patiently allow God to do the rest. The outcome is always in the hands of the Lord. I'm just to do the work. What it plays out to be, that's on God. And this brings us to the third principle that drives our need to communicate the gospel. Look at verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. What does this tell us? It tells us that other people are going to be resistant. We live in a world where people want to hear what they want to hear. That's the world we live in. They don't care whether it's true or not. I just want to hear what I believe. I want that to be affirmed. Don't don't confuse me with the truth. And sadly... Many of us do the very same thing. We surround ourselves with people who are just like us. People who are the same age, the same ethnicity, the same socioeconomic class, the same educational background, the same political views, the same theological views, and the sameness goes on and on and on. And all of these people, all of these same people, tell us exactly what we want to hear because it's exactly what they want to hear. 
And it's all the same. And many of us, we live our lives in this echo chamber, hearing the same thing over and over and over again. And as a result, our beliefs, our opinions, our behaviors, our politics, our theology is never challenged, so we don't have to think critically about them. And in some cases, because we're not challenged, we end up believing a lie. And that is a horrible place to be. This is the very thing that happened to the people in ancient Israel. The, the northern kingdom of the divided Jewish nation had already fallen to the Assyrians. So you had a northern kingdom, you had a southern kingdom. Israel was all together, but uh, after the death of uh, Joshua, things imploded, the two kingdoms divided, and, and the northern kingdom gets taken over by the nation of Assyria. Now, the southern kingdom is about to fall uh, many years later to the Babylonians. And God in his mercy sends a prophet by the name of Jeremiah to warn the southern kingdom of the impending danger and to plead with them to repent of their sins so that God would keep the nation from being destroyed by the Babylonians. So God interjects Jeremiah into the southern kingdom and Jeremiah's like, please listen to God. If you don't listen to God, the, 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 the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to kill everyone. They're going to blow the kingdom apart. They're going to separate people. But here's the problem. The people living there, they did not want to hear the truth. They didn't want to change their ways. They didn't want to return to God. And they most certainly didn't want to hear what God had told to Jeremiah. So they went out and found themselves prophets who would tell them exactly what they wanted to hear which was that they could do whatever they wanted to do and they would ultimately prevail over the Babylonians. So they found a bunch of prophets say, keep doing what you're doing. It's all going to be fine. You're a great nation. No, don't worry about the Babylonians. Don't worry about what Jeremiah is saying. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. In the midst of listening to these lies, this is what Jeremiah says to the people. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? My people love to have it so. They love to believe lies, even to, the, even to their own demise. And it's into this midst of lies that you and I are to speak God's word because God's word is truth. In Psalm 119, we read these words. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in all of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. You see, those who love Jesus, they love truth. They may not necessarily like the truth, but they love the truth. And those who love the truth, they love other people enough to tell them the truth, even when those people are content to believe a lie. Now, I serve as a... Uh, a chaplain uh, in what's known as the Civil Air Patrol. I've talked a little bit about this. I, I get to, to fly, which I, I, which I love to do, but I also uh, get to teach uh, cadets, uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers, things like uh, character development and, and some of the, uh, uh, the old guys like me that are in the group. I, I try to minister to them. It's a, a lot of the guys aren't Christians. I don't have a whole lot of interactions at times, unfortunately with non-Christians, and so I, I get to interact with a, a lot of different people, and it's a lot of fun, but one of the things as a chaplain that I'm required to do is uh, to attend uh, trainings, and the Civil Air Patrol is the auxiliary of the United States Air Force, so uh, what the Air Force teaches their chaplains, uh, the Civil Air Patrol makes sure that they teach uh, their chaplains, and so uh, about a year and a half ago, I was in one of these trainings, and uh, it was a, a, a week-long training on Zoom. I mean, it was just crazy long. And uh, 
eventually, uh, on one particular day, the instructor was talking about how we as chaplains are, are supposed to affirm male cadets who believe that they're female and how we're supposed to affirm female cadets who believe that they're male, and we need to do that by making sure that we're careful to use their preferred pronouns. And so I, I, I'm listening uh, to this, and I'm listening to this instructor, and, and, and she is, is she's sharing the intricacies of navigating these perilous cultural waters. And I, I, I mean, there are intricacies, and, and the waters are, are perilous. I mean, this is, it's confusing. And uh, as she's doing this, at some point, uh, there's an opportunity for some interaction. And so I, I say to the teacher, I said, ma'am, with all due respect, I said, you are telling me that you want me to lie to our cadets. And, and, and this is on Zoom, but I mean, nobody says anything. You know, Pastor Mike throws the proverbial you know, turd out into the middle of the table, basically. I know that's a gross thought, but that's an old AMP Incorporated term, all right? And so I, I just throw this thing out, you know? And the instructor, she is incredulous. She's like, of course we do not want you to, to lie to our cadets. To which I said to her, I said, ma'am, I'm glad to hear that because I'm unwilling to lie to someone even if they believe that lie. I'm not going to be mean to them. I'm certainly not going to be unkind to them. But there is no way that I'm going to lie to them. I mean, if I had a cadet who was anorexic and, and, and she wanted me to affirm that she was fat, I'm not doing that. If I have a cadet who thinks that they're a bird and climbs up to the control tower at Capital City Airport and is going to jump off the tower, am I going to affirm that they're a bird? No, I'm not going to lie to them. And if you and I are going to faithfully communicate the gospel to our generation next, we've got to humbly yet firmly communicate God's truth to a world that has knowingly and unknowingly embraced Satan's lies. We have to be courageous. We've got to be kind. We've got to be loving. But we have to be courageous. Now, why, when we bring parents up here nowadays, I, I added that part to what? My, when, when we're doing a child dedication, like, I promise that I'm not going to lie to my kid. Don't lie to our kids. I have a family member who, whose mom lied to him about his birth dad for his entire life. He thought one man was his dad when in reality another man was his dad. And the birth dad died. My family member found out about that. And because his mom lied to him, it has ruined the relationship. Parents, don't lie to your kids. I mean, I think we adopted Nicole. Now, it would be crazy for us to tell Nicole that she wasn't adopted. I mean, it's pretty obvious, all right? You got white parents, you're a black kid, all right? But, I mean, we were always honest with Nicole. When Nicole asked us questions about her, her birth mom, we, we always sought to tell her the truth. We didn't hide things. We didn't sugarcoat them. Why? Because I respect and I love Nicole. And if we respect and love people, we tell them the truth even if they want to believe the lie. Next one. I got a book going along here. Where am I at time? Wow. <laughs> All right. Work is hard. Verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Put some, the work's going to be hard. It demands that we're sober-minded. In other words, you got to have a clear head. We can't freak out when the world is going crazy around us. Ah! We cannot freak out. It's okay. God is still on the throne, even though the world is insane. 
And even though it doesn't seem like it, we don't need to fear, we don't need to hide, we don't need to run. What we need to do is we need to love God and love others and stand humbly yet firmly on his word. And in the process of doing that, in the process of doing that, we are going to suffer. If you don't want to suffer, give up on being a Christian. We're going to suffer. And if we haven't suffered as a Christian, if we haven't been treated poorly, if we haven't been ridiculed or overlooked or spoken poorly about or left out, if we haven't lost friends or haven't lost opportunities, chances are we're not doing a very good job of living out our faith. Listen to the pep talk that Jesus gives his disciples before they go out to share the gospel. He says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, be innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And they will deliver you over. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for you are to say, or for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not yours to speak, but the Spirit to your Father speaking through you, or from your Father speaking to you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. In addition for us being told to be sober-minded and endure suffering, Paul states the opposite, or the obvious. He says, be an evangelist. Put simply, you're supposed to tell other people about Jesus. And we are to keep doing it until God says we're done. That's the fulfill your ministry part. Now, that's a lot, but there's one last piece. Look at these last verses, 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, the reward is ultimately worth it. Paul He's on the other side of all of this. He has done the hard work. He has fought the good fight. He's left everything on the field. He has been faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to his generation and the next. And he has done what he, he, he has done what he is now calling Timothy and he's calling you and I to do. And he has suffered greatly for it. And only one thing remains. And that's for him to receive the crown of righteousness from Jesus. Paul has done the work. He has fought the hard fight. He has finished strong. And now it is his turn to hear from Jesus, well done, my good and faithful servant. Folks, we're at all different ages. I look around in this crowd right now, there's young kids who may be on this planet for another 80 years. There, there's some of you that are sitting here right now that within the next six months, I'm probably going to be doing your service. It's just the reality of it. None of us knows our time. We simply don't. Today's the anniversary of a, a good friend of mine who came to Living Water years and years ago, a guy by the name of Dr. Ron Alexander. Ron was a super healthy guy. He was 61 years old. He was out on Pincho Lake. He was rowing like he did every day. Has a massive heart attack, falls over in his uh, skull or whatever that thing's called, drowns and dies. Ron didn't go out on that lake thinking, I'm going to not come home to my wife tomorrow or today. But the fact of the matter is, some of us are closer to meeting Jesus than others. And we need to be faithful. And for those of us who've got theoretically a long time, we need to be faithful also. And I'm here to tell you the rewards are great.
I mean, I shared my faith with my mom and dad for years and years and years. And I rejoice every single day that I see them sitting here and I know that they're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. It was worth all of the struggles and all of the pain. It was worth every moment of it. And you probably have relatives and loved ones that that, that you want to see them again in heaven. And I pray that you would be faithful because God is faithful. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for these folks. And Lord, now as we um, prepare to take the Lord's Supper and ultimately, uh, Lord, share in giving and offering uh, for your work, dear God, I pray that you would work uh, powerfully in our lives. Uh, Lord, would you help us all to take very seriously uh, the responsibility for uh, us to share the gospel with uh, this generation and the next Lord, help us to to love others even when they're not lovable, even when they don't love us back. Lord, do the work that only you can do. And and now, Heavenly Father, as we prepare to uh, take the Lord's Supper, uh, Father, I want to pray back to you uh, a prayer that was probably written in the 16th century about the Lord's Supper. Lord God, God of all good, we bless you for the means of grace. Teach us to see in them your loving purposes and the joy and the strength that they give to our soul. You have prepared for us a feast this day, though we are unworthy to sit down as a guest. We wholly rest on the merits of Jesus. We hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. When we hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, We cannot hesitate, but must come to you in love. By your spirit, enliven our faith to rightly discern and spiritually to apprehend your son. While we gaze upon the emblems of our Savior's Savior's death, may we ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to remove your sin. Shed my blood to blot out your guilt. Opened my side to make you clean. Endured your curses to set you free. Bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may we rightly grasp the breadth and the length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that we do for ourselves gladly in faith, reverence and love, receive our Lord. Be our life, our strength, our nourishment, our joy, our delight. In this supper, we remember your eternal love, your boundless grace, your infinite compassion your agony, your cross, your redemption. And we receive the assurance of pardon, of adoption, of life, and of glory. And as the outward elements nourish our body, may your indwelling spirit invigorate our soul until that day when we hunger and thirst no more and we sit with Jesus at his heavenly feet. Lord God, thank you for these elements that we are about to enjoy. And it's through your son's name we pray.